What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it is the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in New York, and I'm joined today by Shereen Ahmed, freelance sports writer and force of nature in Toronto, Canada, the brilliant Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer at Think Progress in D.C., and Jessica Luther, independent writer and smarty pants in Austin, Texas. Before we begin, I want to shout out our patrons for their generous support and remind listeners that if you become a patron and sponsor this podcast for as little as $2 monthly, you can get access to extra segments, the newsletter, and other exclusive content. Thank you, thank you to the Patreon community. And a quick reminder that we now have merchandise. Check out teespring.com backslash stores backslash burn it all down with a bunch of dashes in between. We've got it on our Twitter. We are so grateful for your support, listens, and comments on the pod. This week, we're going to talk doping in Russia, pay equity in sports, and beyond. Lindsay interviews Michelle Vopel about the FIBA Women's World Cup. We'll burn some of the trash in sports this week and celebrate some badass women. But before all that, I want to chat a bit about the NWSL final that took place this week between the Portland Thorns and North Carolina Courage. Woo! Uh, I'm going to guess, I'm going to control yourself. I'm going to guess that burn it all down, we might have different favorites here. We might not be feeling the same feelings about about that particular final. But given that she is a hometown, I will start with Lindsay, who is already whelping. Yes. <laughs> what what Look, did you think? What do you think? Any day that the state of North Carolina wins a championship, as long as it doesn't come from Duke, it's a good day. So having the North Carolina Courage win was was phenomenal. They just three nothing <laughs> like shut out like it was dominant and it was really you know after seeing them lose in such a physical battle last year it was really incredible to watch it all come together i mean jessica mcdonald was <laughs> ridiculously good and her story so incredible i mean she's you know a mother six years ago she kind of had to restart her career completely you know after after everything so she's been on I think six different NWSL teams in like six different years <laughs> and you know it's just really kind of been all around the league and so to see her really bring it together in North Carolina and on this big stage to you know win the MVP award which was very deserving she scored two of the goals and look yeah it was just great to see I mean I would love to see a little bit more support it was unfortunate I know we we had a hot take Brenda did about the semifinal and one of the things there was talking about how, you know, the semifinal didn't get to be played in North Carolina 
because of Hurricane Florence. So that was a really big blow to the, you know, obviously there are more important things to worry about with the hurricane, but it was still, I think it was a really big blow to the franchise because everyone had been really looking forward to hosting that game. It was going to be a really big moneymaker for the team. It was going to really help the team kind of fund a lot of things going forward. So I think like the team is still really kind of the, the owners are really upset about that still. But this will hopefully be able to drive interest. I'm hoping it's getting a lot of good local coverage, which will help drive interest for next year. Well, and probably, you know, we should also talk about just the attendance, which was amazing. It was, what, 22,000? So the largest ever for a finals audience of a professional, women's professional league soccer final. I think I've got that right. Because of course, US women's national team draws much higher than that. But this was a very big and a very boisterous crowd. And also one that was very aggressively pissed at North Carolina. Uh, Shireen? Yeah, I don't, I just wanted to say that the match itself was incredible in terms of, you know, physicality, North Carolina dominated. I am very, very clearly a Portland's fan. I've always been, and not just because of Nadine, but Amandine, Amandine Henri, uh, Steph Kately, Nadine Anger is like one of my favorite goalkeepers ever. She's her, a goalkeeping coach. I think that, you know, Portland is legendary. And of course, above and beyond Captain Christine Sinclair, who even to the end of the second half was pushing and pushing and pushing and just they couldn't finish. So, I mean, other than the obvious defensive breakdowns that were happening for Portland, which is, you know, they have a pretty stock team. And a lot of people don't know this, but out of the 11 best of of the NWSL, eight were on the pitch last night in this final. That's how good these two teams are. Now, the Riveters, the port, like the Rose City Riveters, who are the supporting team for Portland, are the best fans in the world, in my opinion, other than the, the Celtics in Scotland and the Football League. So they are dedicated. They gave their team a standing ovation, even though they did not win the final. They were booing Hinkle. And there's obvious reasons for that. There, you know, Jules, our friend of the show, Jules Boykoff tweeted out why. I think that it's a mix of a lot of things. It's not done. I mean, Rose City Riveters are a group that are unbelievably inclusive. They're unbelievably fair. Yeah. And I mean, they weren't booing because like the match wasn't going well or they were getting frustrated. In fact, they stayed. None of very, very few of the supporters actually left the the match while it was happening they stayed to the end even though the score was 3-0 so i mean that's a pretty and it was it was two nothing in the first half so i mean you've got dedicated fans like that so i'm obviously going to defend and honestly i tweeted out it felt a this this whole thing felt a little bit like Canada getting silver in the Olympics for me it was a little bit hard but that's okay it's it's okay i mean Christine Sinclair is my prime minister and I love her. And it was hard to watch. I mean, this was obviously North Carolina's moment. They shone from, they were relentless and they're attacking, they're finishing. Two of the goals were headers. So it was just incredible. And just McDonald, just, you know, relentless Lynn Williams up in the front, not giving up at all. It was just, they attacked the way they had to. It was, it was perfect. It was, I felt bad for Adriana French because I think she got injured in the second half and wouldn't come off. But for me, it wasn't the result I would have loved, but I'm happy because women's soccer, yay. Also Crystal Dunn diving and pretending that Tobin Heath, it was like, (laughs) The funniest moment ever. And, you know, good, good on Crystal Dunn. And a lot of these players are actually U.S. national teammates. They don't care. They're going to go after this with a thirst and a hunger that they deserve. I also really hope 
for the U.S. women's national team, Jess McDonald is the anomaly of what usually comes up in the process. I really hope she's considered because this player is phenomenal. She works well with her teammates. And I would love to see her at a U.S. training camp, but she doesn't fit the model of what U.S. soccer looks like, unfortunately, the national team level, in my opinion. And I really hope they reconsider that because as Sharon Von Epps wrote in 2016, soccer is very much a white girl sport in the U.S. Yeah, totally. I wanted to, you know, the courage were amazing and so much credit to them, but also credit to the Thorns because... It was an exciting match even to the end, even though they were losing and clearly going to lose like they kept up the energy. And I just wanted to very quickly give a shout out to the North Carolina Courage fan in the stands who had a sign that said Pride of North Carolina and the pride was rainbow. And I just thought every time they showed that person on TV, I was just thumbs up guy. So I just wanted to give a (laughs) shout out to that person. Yay, totally deserving. Um, I'm sure we'll continue to talk more. Obviously, um, Jessica McDonald did have also a religious message on her shirt. So there was a lot of booing of Hinkle. I think mostly we've talked about that a lot on the pod. But going forward, it'll be interesting to see how in this particular league, there are several outspoken players on the courage who have expressed the pitch as a place to express their religious beliefs. But just really quickly, Jess McDonald has been very outspoken for equality and for pride. So I don't, you know, while well, it she is... also really defended Hinklaw. She she came yeah. out very so I understand what you're saying, but she was very she was the teammate that came out to defend Hinkle after the 700 club. Yeah, I mean, they're so longtime I, friends. And I yeah, I mean, I get it. But I just I don't know that. I mean, she, I just you know, she's always been very outspoken. And she wears all the, you know, the pride jerseys. And you know, so it's a tough conversation. to have. <laughs> but it's yeah. an interesting one. I'm just yeah, saying it, it provokes yeah. like it'll keep generating like, you know, a certain there's a really interesting like, sort of light that illuminates from this li- this rivalry. You know, that just sort of, it's like an energy that's really interesting and developing and unfolding. But but I just wanted to add that I thought this was really interesting because Jess McDonald had a shirt that said, Jesus paid it all. And it couldn't help but bring me back to when I remember FIFA banning hijab because they didn't want religion on the pitch. So I think this is something we should always keep in mind when we're discussing these kinds of things. Okay. On that note, (laughs) which means that we'll definitely return to this, but I am sad to see the NWSL season come to a close, but let's move on. Doping, doping, doping. And Russia. And doping. Jessica, do you want to give us an update on what's new this week? Yeah, so... This last week, the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, decided to lift the ban on Russia's anti-doping program, Rosada. So Rosada had been suspended back in 2015. And here's how Gregory Rachenkov, the former Moscow lab director and whistleblower who exposed Russia's state-sponsored doping system, explained why they had been suspended in a USA Today op-ed last week. Quote, 
The Russian anti-doping agency was first suspended in November 2015 following the release of the Pound Report, WADA's independent investigation into widespread doping in Russian athletics. The Pound Report brought to light my country's state-sponsored doping program to the world, revealing a labyrinth of cover-ups and sample manipulation. The report also proved that doping-free competition and the protection of clean athletes, both cornerstones to WADA's mission, were deliberately ignored. In 2018, after deliberating on an even more damning report about Rosada from 2016, the McLaren Report, just before the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics, the IOC suspended the Russian Olympic Committee from the Olympics and did not allow Russia to compete as a team. We talked about this on the podcast at the time. The IOC, ever spineless, (laughs) reinstated Russia three days after the Olympics ended. Okay, then. So WADA's decision last week has angered a lot of people across the sports world, including the U.S. anti-doping agency, Olympic athletes like Michael Phelps, and Rochenkov, who called the possible reinstatement of Rosada, quote, a catastrophe for clean sport. So there's one really important thing to understand about this WADA decision. It has very little to do with anti-doping efforts. This is clear because Russia was supposed to meet specific requirements in order to be reinstated and did not meet some of those and was granted reinstatement anyway. So here's how our own Lindsay Gibbs described it for Think Progress earlier this week. Quote, WADA previously set forth a roadmap to reinstatement for Rosada, which primarily included fully accepting the findings of the McLaren report and opening the doors of the Rosada laboratory for inspection by WADA. Rosada is currently 0 for 2. It didn't matter. Last week, the BBC reported that WADA reached a compromise with Rosada and narrowed the scope of what Rosada had to admit to in terms of the McLaren report and offered to have an independent expert examine select samples and data from the Moscow laboratory in lieu of full access. And here's the kicker. The IOC, as part of its punishment for Rosada, said member federations couldn't stage events in Russia until the country had a compliant anti-doping agency again. According to the Press Association, quote, one consequence of Rosada's reinstatement is that WADA does not have to declare International Boxing Federation, AIBA, non-compliant for giving its 2019 World Championships to Sochi. (laughs) So, yay. Yay. (laughs) Which leaves us with this question. What is the point of WADA? And is there a more corrupt and disgusting organization than the IOC? I know that they face off with FIFA for this honor, but I really just feel like the IOC is like taking the crown on this. So I don't even know where to go from here, but it just like, what what is the point of WADA? What is anti-doping at this point? Yeah, I have a question because you think about this a bit more than I do, but why is Russia so, so, so like they'll get, they need Russia back at any cost. Why is that? Is it, is it just symbolic importance I think or, I mean, I think people think they're paying. Like, I think it's a big money exchange kind of thing, right? There's like financial corruption going on. That's what Rodchenkov uh, like implied about Pyeongchang. You know, the coming the Russia coming back three days after was that there was clearly financial reasons that they were bending to that. Yeah, it just seems like it's got to be more than that because a lot of countries would offer to pay. Like, we had the. I was seeing the different Kenyan runners in Bahrain and how they're being caught with doping. And it's very clear that they're also paying the athletes in a sense, or it looks like perhaps increasing their bonuses if they dope or as a reward for doping. So I get the corruption, but it seems like there's a particular kind of also, and maybe it goes back to Cold War stuff idea that the IOC just can't function without Russia or something. It just 
doesn't make the Olympic Games have the kind of magnet attraction or something. Lindsay? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it is. It definitely goes back, you know, it's it's all connected to this kind of political world. And also, look, I think Russia likes to pay a lot of money under the table to host these events as well, you know? So they need to keep having people who are going to host these mega events and, you know, keeping Russia in the fold um, is good for those purposes. Uh, Look, it's just, it's just a mess. You know, I think you actually had the vice president of WADA. She was one of the two people who voted against this. Her name is Linda Hofstad Helleland. She's the vice president of WADA, and she was one of two executives to vote against Rosada's uh, reinstatement. I just want to read a little bit of her statement, because I think it's important to know there are a few people kind of fighting from within here. So she said, this is one of the most critical decisions the anti-doping community has ever been confronted with. As an organization, WADA's number one job is to be truer to our values of fair sport. And today we made the wrong decision in protecting the integrity of sport. And she just summed it up kind of by saying, today we failed the clean athletes of the world. Now, look, all of this doping stuff can get a little morality <laughs> policing to me sometimes. Yes, and I agree. It can get yeah. a little like I'm up here on my ivory, you know, on my mountain of, you know, cleanliness and perfection. But, you know, I think I, I like looking at it from a systemic point of view more than anything. And it's clear that Russia uses sports as propaganda very much They've been very upfront about that. Putin wants to control the the international image of Russia. And to do that, they have systematic doping programs within their countries. And they like to hold these big sporting events. Also, because the international view of Russia after the World Cup or after the Sochi Olympics always goes up. And so does the national pride within Russia. So... Look, this is just all connected to uh, green propaganda. And ultimately, the people who are running these systems don't actually care about the athletes. Jess? Yeah, I just wanted to piggyback off of all that great stuff that Lindsay just said. But to drive the point home that a lot of the corruption is not just at the IOC level, but at the federation level, right? So like boxing wants to hold their event in Sochi. And so part of it is that the idea is that WADA is bending to these federations, that Russia's, you know, also probably paying off all of those people, putting a lot of money into the, into that specific part. Like, so they're, it's not just the top level, right? They're really just the corruption is all over, which we talk about all the time. And I just want to tell people, if you haven't seen Icarus, which I believe is still on Netflix, this documentary where about doping Rodchenkov like if you want to see in action his whistleblowing but also they just have really really good graphics of the extent of how Russia doped during Sochi that like it's mind-blowing what they went to so even for someone like me who has I have a lot of problems with the way we talk about doping and purity and what counts as doping and what counts as cheating and all that sort of stuff but as Lindsay said the sort of systemic like the minutiae the detail that went into the doping that russia did like there are clearly rules and they did everything they could to break them and they don't have to make any kind of amends for that it it is just mind-blowing 
I just want to plug a book that I loved that just came out by Paul DeMeo and Werner Muller. They're two two professors, and they wrote this book called The Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport, Causes, Consequences, Solutions. And in it, they brought up so many fascinating cases that actually don't make the headlines, that never make the headlines. And I know Russia is a different case because we're talking about a whole system and a whole kind of I don't know, huge infrastructure (laughs) dedicated to cheating. But there's also a lot just about the anti-doping system that evidently does punish innocent athletes. And one of the ones, and I think one of the things that we don't think about is, well, I don't think about, maybe other people, but the number of innocent athletes that get that get sort of punished for this, and the punishments are very, very dire, you know, years and years of suspensions. And they have this section on tainted meat. I don't know if you have heard about this. Tainted meat has clenbuterol, which is a banned substance. And, and the IOC, it's, it's amazing because it comes from cows that are fed growth hormones. And all these athletes that take trips to Mexico, for example, come back and immediately test positive. Like the entire wow. U-17. Yeah, like the entire U-17 German soccer team. And it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. So I just think it's interesting to look like these crises come up. And then like you say, what is WADA for? And what is it doing? And then there's a whole nother arm of it that we never even hear about, about these individual cases where they try very hard to control substances that we're finding in all kinds of places. And athletes that don't have this infrastructure are more likely, according to this book, to actually get picked up for doping because they're not watching themselves. They're not like analyzing their pee (laughs) or blood or whatever. So it was just really, it was really good. They have a lot of constructive ideas about how to fix the system, like including having doctors that are accredited by WADA And then the suspensions go on WADA accredited doctors and not on the athletes if there's, you know, if there's discrepancies. So it's called the Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport. It just came out. Causes, Consequences, Solutions. Paul DeMeo has been working on this like for a super long time. The other guys, Werner Mahler. And they're just sort of, I mean, not only do they question kind of what is it for and what are these big infrastructures, but they're kind of working on these cases that we never hear about in the doping system. So it's just kind of fascinating to think about Russia with this whole kind of machine set up and then how it's different in terms of that. Um, Jessica, how do you, how does this make you think about Serena? I mean, because the other doping scandals are when individual athletes feel as though they're being sort of I don't know, spotlighted, persecuted by testing. Do you think, like, if you look at the whole doping, you know, sort of infrastructure, anti-doping campaigns, do you think that there's a way to avoid that? Or is that just going to be part of the system? Yeah, I don't. That's a great question. And I'm not sure how you change it. I mean, there is something to the way that they, the better you are the more you get tested, right? And they do try to do a randomness to it. I don't know. Lindsay, you probably have thoughts. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a lot of misreporting and irresponsible reporting about the amount that Serena was drug tested earlier this year. Um, She has certainly not always been treated fairly, but there was, uh, I think, a piece on Deadspin and a lot of other people ran with this saying that she had been, you know, been tested 
you know, multiple times more than other people when in reality, you know, they're comparing her doping test to like Maria Sharapova when in reality, they were looking at the U.S. doping, U.S. doping association, which, of course, does not test Maria Sharapova because she's within the Russian, you know, federation. So we all have to take a deep breath before talking about any of this stuff, because there has to be some degree of if you've been out for a long time and come back and are winning at, at crazy rates, you should maybe get a couple more, you know, tests out of competition or something, you know, you know, older athletes. So and Serena and, and really good athletes. So Serena falls in all these categories. But of course, there's also obviously a racial component to the way we've talked about Serena for so many years, whereas, you know, Serena has been accused of doping in a very colloquial and casual manner by people throughout the sports and media world. So, you know, I think it's tough because when you do look at individual athletes, the way we talk about, I mean, let's talk about Castor Semenya. Do you know what I mean? The way we target athletes, especially black women who have bigger you know, like more muscular bodies naturally is unfair. But everyone also has to, there has to be some sort of, it doesn't help anyone. I got really frustrated about the Serena conversation earlier this year because it just, it it's so easy to, there are so many legitimate things to complain about. Do you know what I mean? Like with the way Serena is treated that we don't need to be making things up by kind of inventing data. We definitely don't want to invent data. Yeah, <laughs> that's not that usually doesn't work well. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay, well, we'll keep an eye on this story. Now we'll hear an interview between Lindsay and Michelle Vopel about the FIBA Women's World Cup. Hello, everyone. I am here with the wonderful Michelle Vopel, ESPN's women's basketball expert extraordinaire. And we are going to talk about the FIBA Women's World Championship World Cup. It is both, (laughs) I believe. And, you know, we've had about two days to recover from the WNBA final. So it's time to gear up for something else. (laughs) Right, Michelle? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, turn around real quickly. <laughs> yeah, really, really quickly. But anyways, so we got 16 teams here in this tournament. They start group play, and then there there will be something that always confuses me, which is a quarterfinal challenger thing where the second and the third teams from each group play for a spot in the quarterfinals. And then the first seed automatically advances. And then from there, it's a pretty straight knockout tournament quarterfinals semifinals final let's start with team usa here at home we have the 12 person roster were there any sizes for you in that selection you know this is a different year in that we had a a lot of big names that didn't you know that that aren't playing in it uh, sort of took themselves out of contention and some of those it was you know there's some older players like a simone augustus who i think have kind of aged out at this point but then a player like maya moore who you know is is still just 29 but i think was you know i talked to her earlier this week was just exhausted and worn down from this season and so because of that, you know, and then you even look at, for instance, like a, a Skylar Diggins-Smith or, a, you know, Chelsea Gray, you know, both of them sort of took themselves out for that same reason, you know, sort of trying to heal and, and also and fatigue. And then Angel McCautry, also a stalwart with the Team USA who, who had an ACL injury. 
So all of that, of course, is sort of the background of why we we get a team that has, you know, five really true newcomers for, you know, for one of these two major competitions, the World Cup or or the Olympics. You know, maybe Morgan Tuck, you know, sort of, I think was sort of a surprise to some people, you know, to make this team, not because she doesn't deserve to be there, but that might've been one of the surprises making the team over, say, somebody like an Elizabeth Williams, who was right at the end, you know, a, a cut on this team. So, you know, maybe a Kelsey Plum, I think might've surprised some people that made the team. But again, it's because some of the names we probably at the beginning of the season thought, oh, yeah, this this player will be on the roster. They're not on the roster. So, look, the USA is favorites. It's not we're not going out on a limb to say that they are. They didn't look as in sync as they have historically during kind of these friendlies because they were all just coming off of such a grueling season and they are getting to know each other. Don Staley still kind of coming into her own as the coach here. So, you know, there could be some potentials for an upset. And if there is, let's talk about a few of the teams that could possibly get that upset. Number one has to be, for me, Australia because of Liz Cambage. Of course, they had a Leilani Mitchell ended up getting injured and was not able to play for them, which is going to be a really big downside. But do you think that Lauren Jackson came out? She thinks they can win gold. What do you think, Michelle? Well, you know, I think probably Lauren figures like what what's there to lose, right? right you know, yeah. it's like the easiest <laughs> thing in the world is to pick pick the USA women to win an international competition. But th- their concern probably, you know, is a playmaker spot. That right. is a concern with Leilani being hurt, having a little less experience there. But you're right. I mean, talent wise, they have a lot of it. You know, they have like it was five players now, I believe, are, are on the on the roster or on the on the final roster who played. Uh, in the WNBA this season. And I'm assuming now Stephanie Talbot is, is, you know, completely back from, um, she had the, uh, you know, the uh, concussion concussion that that kept her out, but she's back. And we saw what a, an incredible player Liz Cambage was this year, you know, obviously strong, strong candidate for MVP, which, which Brianna Stewart won, but, but Liz was right there. So yeah, you would think that could potentially be a, a tough game, you know, for the Americans if it happened. But the American strength is still in that, you know, in that guard position with our two grandmas, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Diana Tarazi. And so that's an area that, you know, that is still probably going to be, a, you know, a big strength for the Americans, even, you know, the Australians have a lot of talent. Yeah, a lot's going to come down to Sammy, who, of course, played so well during the final and during the yeah. playoffs. So, you know, I think she could have a really big tournament, you know, kind of seizing off of that momentum and, you know, taking, I'm sure she's going to get a lot of minutes. And of course they have the coaching. I don't want to say win, but you know, they've got Sandy Brondello <laughs> leading the way. So never count her out. And then uh, Canada's got some newcomers. Of course, we have Burn It All Down guest and favorite Kia Nurse. They're leading the way. Natalie Achanwa. They had a big injury with Alexander not being able to come. That was really disappointing. But do you think that Canada has a chance for a medal here? You know, I think it is possible just because this is a this is a country that has really progressed a lot in women's basketball in the time that I've been covering the sport and even in the last decade or so. So when you have like a, a Natalie Chonwa and a, and a Kia Nurse players who you know, are very good, you know, WNBA players, I do think that, you know, they have a chance and I like their spirit. You know, that's one yeah. thing you, you like about the Canadian team. They're a young group. I mean, all these teams are relatively yeah. young, but they are a young group and uh, they, 
they just have that kind of, you know how Lindsay, like with a Canadian soccer team, they had that moxie, the women's soccer totally, team. Totally, always totally. Kind of moxie with them. I kind of think of it the same way. And, and definitely with Kia and Natalie, you know, with their college backgrounds, you know, coming from these, you know, the premier programs that they do with UConn and Notre Dame, they don't go into games feeling like big underdogs, even if they are big underdogs. So that's that's kind of cool about Team Canada. I think they're the team that a lot of us are really looking forward to watching throughout this tournament. Now, there, there are two other big European teams that I think some of our listeners might not know much as much about, and that includes me. <laughs> what do you know about Spain and France? And uh, Spain, of course, being the home team, what chances do they have to make a big splash? I think one of the things that really stands out to me with Spain is that this is a country that's really improved its women's national teams, not just in basketball, though it's definitely in basketball, but also, you know, in soccer, in golf, for instance, that how many more Spaniards we've seen. And it's kind of, it's nice to see because that means there's been investment in girls and women's sports in Spain, which there were obstacles, yeah. you know, which, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you have covered on on other podcasts about s- certain countries and the machismo in certain countries and, and overcoming things. And Spain is one of those countries. So I always enjoy seeing the Spaniards, you know, continue to do better. They were the runners up last time. Right. You know, they played, played very well against the United States for a lot of that game in the gold medal game back in 2014. So that's a team also that has two in particular players who I think that the WNBA fans would would recognize in Marta Zarge and Anna Cruz and Anna in particular, you know, won a, a WNBA title with uh, right. with the Lynx back. So they have that experience and they also like France, they're a team that has played a lot together. It's the the exact opposite, which I think, you know, most of us, you know, who follow this know, but it, you always have to reiterate it. The U.S. has the least preparation time. And then teams like, you know, France and Spain have the most preparation time. I think France is another, that's a country where their professional league has made big strides. And there's, you know, there's some more WNBA players, I think, trying to uh, to play in that in that league now. So that time spent together, that cohesion that can come into play and it happened. And now this is a while ago, right? So but we have to bring it up back in 2006, which is the last time the USA lost, they lost to Russia in the semifinals. And there was a lot to that then that Russia team was very cohesive. They had played together a lot. They kept gaining confidence throughout that game. And USA never kind of got over the hump in that game. Now, admittedly, that's a dozen years no, ago, but- last time they lost. <laughs> I think the other countries look, you know, they still look to how did this happen before and how do we do it? And part of doing it is having that cohesion and that experience with each other. Absolutely. Let's look really quickly at at a few other storylines. Of course, there are, what, Mm -hmm. 11 other teams (laughs) here. And so it's hard to get to all of them. I know, you know, I'm a, I do cover the Washington Mystics. So I'm excited to see Emma Miesman back in action for the Belgian team. And I know it's, you know, she skipped the WNBA season in order to be here for this tournament, essentially. And, you know, I'm really excited to see how Belgium does in this competition. What teams are, are you keeping an eye out for? You know, I'm interested in China yeah. because I think China was a team that we we thought was going to take more of a step forward in the last decade. 
And I'm wondering if if that's going to happen or if we'll see more of that. It hasn't happened maybe as much as we expected it to. But you look for in the World Cup is whether or not you start to see some individual stars yeah. on some of these teams. Maybe you know, have a chance to develop. And we have seen that a few times in, in recent years. It's, we have such a wealth of riches. I mean, it's ridiculous what we have here in the United States. And so sometimes we take for granted that, you know, having, cause we have so many of them, but it's, it's fun sometimes to watch, to see who might emerge. And if any of those players who maybe we haven't seen yet in the WNBA, kind of maybe make a, a move towards being in the WNBA at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is certainly, you know, players can gain so much confidence and so much experience in tournaments like this, especially because you have the round robin. So it's not the single elimination right off of the gates. I'm excited. So the African teams have never won a game, a single game, I believe, at the World Cup. Um, Nigeria, so it's Nigeria and Senegal this year. Uh, Nigeria would have the best shot at maybe stealing a game, but they've had some some turnover. I think their coach just left. It's been kind of tumultuous. Yeah, and I think whenever we, you know, and again, to, to sort of reference the other sports like soccer and even hockey, which isn't all these same countries, it's a different group of countries, but we've watched that over the last, you know, 20, sometimes 30 years. And sometimes there's been real strong development in other countries. I would say right now, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I was talking to Graham Hayes about this the other day, that maybe, you know, there's some nations really emerging in women's soccer that, that could make the next 20 years really interesting for the U.S. national team in soccer, because I don't think, you have probably talked about this before too, I don't think we are preparing in soccer as well as we need to. And it'll be interesting to see if that happens or anything similar to that happens in women's basketball, because no. we're not there yet. We're all going to be stunned if the U.S. doesn't win this, even though we know it's possible, but we'll be stunned. But you always have to think about when you look at some of these countries, if they are really laying a groundwork for 20 years from now, you know, if we're going to be looking at a different landscape. And part of the reason I say that is, of course, if you were to go back 30 years or 40 years in the FIBA women's, you know, world championship slash world cup history, you know, you, Russia, obviously the, the Soviet Union slash Russia and, you know, was, was the dominant power even before the United States. And they're not even in this year's event. So that's something that's always interesting too, from a historical perspective is who we might be seeing, you know, trying to, to lay some groundwork in that. And I think we all want to see the sport grow in those countries, all of these countries. Yeah, I completely agree. And it is exciting. Like on the Nigerian team, their captain, Ilanu, was with Makatri out, got some time with the Atlanta Dream here at the end yeah. of the year. And so, you know, you're starting, the game is just becoming more and more global, the women's game. And I think this will be another chance to kind of see that. I believe Puerto Rico is in their first World Cup. So we want to give them a shout out as well. And as someone who was at the Japan USA friendly earlier this month, check out Japan from Beyond the Arc. They can shoot. <laughs> I don't think they can do anything in the... The post, they'll probably be dominated, but they have some shooters on that team. So yeah. they'll they'll be fun to tune into. 
Yeah, they definitely. Yeah. And you're right about that. That's such a good point because, you know, some of these teams, they develop a skill, you know, they know they're not, they just don't have the personnel or even a sort of a historical, you know, pipeline of players at certain positions. So they get, they try to get really, really good at certain skills. And sometimes they can really, you know, that can be fun to watch too, because they they are very good at that in Japan. That's a good example of that with the, the way they're able to, to shoot the ball. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. I feel much more prepared for the tournament now, which is good. So by the time everyone's listening here to this, I think we'll be about at the quarter qualification rounds, but it should be a really fun one. So thanks, Michelle. Yeah, looking forward to watching it. Pay equity is one of those issues that seems like it should be less controversial than it is. Given the successful endings to the NWSL and WNBA seasons and FIFA hinting this week at increased prize money for women in the World Cup, I think it's time we have a more in-depth discussion of it. Linz, do you want to get us started? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) This is such a calm topic to talk about. It doesn't make me boil with rage at all. (laughs) So that's really good. Yeah. Our good friend uh, and dear co-host Jessica Luther wrote a great piece for the Huffington Post this, this week. That's what it is. It's a week called Pay WNBA Players What They Deserve. And I think that pretty much sums it up. Of course, what our problem is, is that that word deserve means different things to different factions of people. (laughs) Capitalism, in many ways, having capitalism determine completely the market for athletes. First of all, that's a pretty American thing. (laughs) Overseas, there is a lot of, of very, very rich people willing to invest in athletes for other reasons, for pride because they see the inherent value in the sports they are participating in because they see the value in investing in them as athletes. And I'm not saying the overseas systems are perfect, but I am saying that it makes me very mad when all these discussions about women's pay equity uh, starts and ends with capitalism for so many people. Well, how much money is the WNBA making? Well, First of all, nobody knows, <laughs> which is a problem. And second of all, the, the what if it's making less because we're not investing in the sport and in the athletes enough because they're having to go overseas, because they're not getting getting known, because they're not becoming household names in the United States because they're spending eight months in other countries playing nonstop. And then when they get here for the WNBA season, they're so burned out that they're not as good as they could be. What if we're limiting the growth of the product in that way and not in not simply, you know, paying them what the market says that they're worth. And so I'd like to just challenge us in this conversation to take the framing a little bit away from capitalism, away from the bottom line. And let's have this radical notion of what if we paid these female athletes what they deserve from a impact they're having on society and degree of talent they possess relative to other non-male athletes like like what 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 happens when we frame the conversation that way shireen you want to jump in here yeah thanks i think it's always really interesting when we talk about pay equity but we are still at a place where a lot of the female athletes the women athletes are not actually getting paid at all 
Like I'm still one step behind in the sense of there are professional athletes who like, just for example, the England's rugby union, they're only, they've come out with this big announcement that they're going to start offering contracts to their players, to professional players. And you're sort of like, we're not even at the step stage to be able to talk about pay equity because for the longest time they're playing haphazardly, no contracts, no legitimate signings. They're not backed up by the federation in that sense, or there's no contractual obligations of the organizations they play for. So like, we're not even there yet. Then, you know, you have countries like, you know, Norway that have decided and very specifically said they're going to pay their national football team members equally, which is wonderful. But we're still very, very much behind that. Because I mean, if we look at Denmark, that was striking. We look at the gong show that was in Ireland of the women that simply weren't being, had no, not even enough stipend to pay by themselves, to support themselves rather, and all had different jobs on the side. Like there's a lot to do. I mean, it's one thing to have this conversation. It's really important to have this conversation, but there's so many steps that we need to take before we even get there. Jessica? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's one of the struggles with even having this conversation, because then any women that do have a little bit are basically told like, well, you got a little bit. Aren't you happy that you have just a little bit? Because so many people have none or so many women have none. So just take what you get, right? So all of it makes the conversation so difficult because you're starting with misogyny. And then from there, any little bit that some woman has is supposed to be like something we celebrate and and we don't have space to even criticize that. Um, And I I wanted to go back to Lindsay's point about shifting the frame because I do think this is huge. So David Barry, who writes for Forbes and is one of the best, he's an economist. He writes on the WNBA all the time. And he wrote another great piece this week comparing the major league lacrosse to the WNBA and the way that the owners and the leagues themselves actually talk about the, I guess, product and the most, the worst words, the capitalistic words. Um, And his whole point was that MLL talks about this, like they're increasing pay for players because they see that as the investment, right? And David talks about how the WNBA seems to only think of their players as cost and that they don't even have a good frame themselves for talking about putting resources and money into these women as investments in the future. And one of the things that really gets me about this is I wrote about this in the piece, but at the Undefeated last year, I believe, Simone Augustus did an interview where she talked about going overseas and why they do it. And they do it for money. They're they're really clear that like they only have so many years to play. They're going to get their money when they can. But the other point of that is she explains why they come back to play in the WNBA. Why do you come back for less money and for all the wear and tear? And for the players, it's for investment. They they both see themselves as part of a legacy, all the work that the women behind them have already done, the history there, but also as you often hear women athletes talk about when they talk about all the sacrifices and the, and the choices that they make, it's for the future, right? And that they're willing to do this to invest in this. And I get really sad when the league itself doesn't even take that uh, framing and they often don't. And it's such a complicated conversation because I totally agree with Shireen that we have such huge issues. But yeah, I do also think these women deserve more money. And like being able to hold those two things at the same time is so unfair because so much of that, the fact that we even have to do that is because misogyny. (laughs) So (laughs) this conversation, is just like ripping your hair out. Well, it is because we have a perfect example in U.S. soccer of where we can point to and say, you know what, capitalist explanations don't work here. 
And so U.S. soccer, I've never understood. I know in 2016, there were five players that filed an EEOC complaint against U.S. soccer because of what the women's team makes, including Rapino and Hope Solo. I can't remember the other three off the top of my head. But basically, the pay disparity would violate all of, of Equal Pay Act, right? Because... Because the World Cup roster, for example, men make about approximately $76,000 for being called up there. Women, 15000 Qualifying for World Cup team, the, the programs get $2.5 million if you're men and 345000 for the women's team. If they win the World Cup, U.S. soccer will pay pays men $9.3 million. I think we should just sit there and laugh for a minute at the idea that the U.S. men will win the World Cup. So I don't even know why they have that. Too soon, Brenda, too soon. No, it's never too soon. (laughs) I actually like the U.S. men's team too, but I just, this makes me so mad. And women who won the World Cup actually in real life in 2015, that program got $1.8 million. So you're looking at huge. And just to tell you about profitability, the total profit, according to U.S. soccer here, and we'll link this to the show notes, the women's program profits $5.2 million. The men's program loses a million dollars. So it's like we have these great examples where it's like everybody, we go on Twitter, all of us, and then people tweet at us shit like, well, you know, when you start pulling in fans like the men do, then start to complain. You know, it's just like, what are you doing at home with yourself right now? I mean, seriously, it's just ridiculous because we have a perfect model of how that's just not true. It might be a little true, but it's a whole lot untrue. Shereen? Yeah, I wrote a piece for Rewire in 2015 after the Women's World Cup. And just to sort of cement what Brenda said, the World Championships, U.S. Women's National Team received $2 million for their prize money. Now, the U.S. Men's National Team got $8 million for not even getting the quarterfinals. They only reached the 16-team round in 2014. And they got four times as much for not winning anything. Like, this is really mind-boggling. And at the same time, we're having a conversation about pay equity. I'm like, we're so far behind. And I will, as always, blame the federations. I will blame the the way this is run. Nobody in their right mind can tell me that U.S. women's soccer is not popular. Like, I'm sorry that it doesn't work like that. And then maybe it's the people I'm surrounded by, but far more can name off so many on the roster of the women's side. I don't even know. The only American player I know is Josie Altador because he's not Canadian yet. And no, I'm exaggerating. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, like it's, when you look at the figures and then I have all these misogynist economists coming at me going, no, the figure is this, this, this. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. And Jacobin Magazine actually did a really good piece on this. They broke down the economics for people such as myself who are not great with numbers, but figure out how basic this is. It's just blatantly unfair because it's not just about you know, the popularity and the merchandise and the marketing. It's also about the labor put in. You cannot tell me these women don't work twice as hard, have other responsibilities, and many have jobs on the side. Think back to not very long ago where a lot of the players, the NWSL players, cannot afford to live on their own because of their salaries, so they bill it with people. Alex Morgan at one time was billeted by somebody. Think about that. Diana Matheson, she billets when she lives in the States and comes home and lives with her parents in Oakville, Ontario. Like, this this is a real thing, a bad thing. 
a real bad thing. A real bad thing. I do want to ask you, Shireen, if you saw the news this week come out where FIFA Council sort of nebulously pointed to the idea that they might make the prize money for the World Cup more equitable and they might fund some business class seats for For some some people. Oh, my God. I mean, I didn't know we were on the burn pile already in the segment, are we? (laughs) (laughs) But it's an interesting prospect, like coming from top down, like even above the federations, right? FIFA saying, oh, this is pretty... I I think we're supposed to clap every time they come up with an idea that let's take a step towards gender equity. No, we should already be there and we're watching you, FIFA. Like, I, you know how I feel about FIFA. So let's just just leave it. I will believe it 10 years after it happens. Yeah, well, it's like I said, it's very nebulous. Supposedly at the end of October, FIFA Council is going to come out with some actual hard numbers in terms of money. But on Burn It All Down, we have a permanent and persistent skepticism. And it it doesn't help when FIFA says, we'll come out with something maybe next month. But it's interesting to keep our eye on because I know we're all super excited about the World Cup next year. Linz, do you want to wrap us up? Here's the thing. A long, long time ago, Someone decided that women were worth far, far less than men, especially in the world of athletics. And since that decision was made by society, it is just every single decision just continues to compound that initial decision until someone does something radical to change it. If you just keep going forward on the path that we're on, nothing radical is going to change. It's just going to get slightly better for women while it keeps getting exponentially better for men because the money on the men's side is not going away. So I think that these sports, that these rich men who are running these sports, that these people on the NBA side, people on the men's soccer side, organizations like FIFA, my wish is that everyone would take a big breath throw out these capitalist ideals and figure out how to make this millions upon millions, hundreds of millions, billions. I can't even think of how much money there is just floating around in these circles, how to make it work better for everyone, because there's a way there's enough money out there and there is a way. And these female athletes are worth it. Okay, now it's time for everybody's favorite segment where we set aflame all the things in sports this week that drove us to distraction. Shireen. Hello. (laughs) So I had a lot to, you know, think about this week. And one of the things that I'm burning above all, and as I burn, I would like to just very happily and pointedly note out that on our crew, we have the brilliant Jessica Luther, whose work really, really shaped the way that this went, this investigation in the Dallas Mavericks. So massive hat tip, or in my case, hijab tip to you, Jess. And Jessica, to you and your writing partner, John Wertheim, on this piece, I'm absolutely burning 
the toxic workplace environment of the Dallas Mavericks. I do not believe Mark Cuban when he says he didn't know. I think what's come out of this, including a 43-page report, is staggering. It's an environment and a culture of fear for women who couldn't even exist within their roles. There was no semblance of professionalism, respect, or dignity for these women. And it was absolutely disgusting. There was instances of clear violence committed and abuse committed against staff members by other staff members. It's just, it's actually horrific to read. And we're sitting here going, and this is all under the, you know, shark tank guy who comes across as being so this and that and the other thing. It's really, really, really rough. And I know trigger warning for people that actually want to read about it because it can be upsetting, but I want to absolutely burn that. And at the same time, while I'm burning, I, like I said, and I'll say again, it's people like Jessica and the investigative reporting and the stuff that happens that gets things turning in motion. So as I burn, I will hand a can of lighter fluid to Jessica and the rest of the team and we'll just pile it on. So I want to burn that. Burn. Burn. Jessica. Yeah. So on Friday evening this past week during the so-called news dump, which is that magical time when you announce things you hope the media won't spend too much time writing or talking about because it's Friday evening and even journalists and columnists have lives. The University of Maryland released a 74-page report into Jordan McNair's death. McNair, you might remember, was the offensive lineman who died earlier this year after doing drills in football practice, which led to heat stroke. According to the independent investigation, from the point when McNair began to cramp up on the field to when they finally removed him from the field was over 30 minutes. It took another half hour before anyone called 911 and then another half hour before the ambulance left to take him to the hospital. McNair died two weeks later. Ultimately, what the report found was that McNair's death was preventable, an absolutely heartbreaking reality. He was not put into a cold tub, which is the normal thing you'd do for heat stroke, because there was no immersion tank near where they were working out, which just, when you think about all the money that goes into this particular sport, so they didn't have the immersion tank near where they are working out, and then once his condition had deteriorated too much, they feared if they did put him in that he would drown. The head football coach, DJ Durkin, is still on paid administrative leave. The trainer in charge, Rick Court, negotiated a settlement with the school and was allowed to resign. Two other trainers have been on administrative leave. As Gabe Fernandez pointed, at, pointed out at Deadspin, the report was not about assessing blame and determining who should be held responsible. The report reads, quote, This evaluation addresses specific procedures including implementation, comprehension, and compliance of established policies. This report excludes any assessment of specific personnel and consequently does not include any recommendations associated with staffing. Maryland has an eight-person commission, because universities love commissions, has an eight-person commission to look into the culture of the football program, and the Board of Regents won't make any decisions about personnel until they get a report from a second external investigation that's currently ongoing. The deep desire to do nothing seems entrenched. According to the Washington Post, quote, it's possible the Board of Regents won't take up that matter until its next scheduled meeting October 19th, which would mean the many issues surrounding the Maryland football program might remain unresolved for several more weeks. Burn everything about this. Just burn it. Burn. Okay, it's hard to even bounce back from from that flaming, flaming trash. Okay, but my burn is less sad and more angry. And it's for those of you not watching the Champions League, you may have missed this amazing moment where Cristiano Ronaldo got a red card. 
I know it was it was a really delightful moment, and um, he got <laughs> he Shireen and I ever after happy. He pulled the other guy's hair. And it was amazing because he's been playing this sport long enough to be able to control that kind of stuff, especially because, like, look, you're now playing for Juventus. You're playing against Valencia. You're winning. You're going to win. You know, why can't he control himself? It's 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 just spectacular. And then he cried. Did you see he cried, Shereen? I thought he, he got a red card and he cried. So what happened was his teammate, Emre Khan, who is a German player for Juventus, defended his teammate by saying, oh, we're not women. You know, he wasn't pulling hair and and having a tantrum. We're not women. We're playing football here. And evidently, we should all respond to comments like that. Like, oh, of course, Cristiano cannot be guilty of such trifling activity because he's not a woman. So Khan says since that he's sorry because he really respects women. And as it turns out, he even knows some. So I just want to burn the ongoing assumption that women are trifling and silly and do silly things and don't play football. And I want to burn his comments and his response. Burn. Lindsay. Yeah, so on Sunday afternoon, after a frustrating Houston Texans loss to the Tennessee Titans, the superintendent of a school district in Texas, Lynn Redden, went to the Houston Chronicle Facebook page and wrote a comment. He said, quote, that might may have been the most inept quarterback decision I've seen in the NFL. He was referring to the play of Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson. He continued to say, when you need precision decision making, you can't count on a black quarterback. According to the Houston Chronicle, the moment this once again School district superintendent (laughs) realized that this was a public comment. He deleted it. Oopsie. But he went on to defend his racism with more racism when talking to the Chronicle. He said, well, over the history of black quarterbacks have had limited success. (laughs) So, you know, his comment wasn't racist. It was just building off of history. Of course, we all know that uh, the reason black quarterbacks haven't had as much success as white quarterbacks historically is because historically black athletes were shut out of the position of quarterback because of racism. So, see, you got to look at the big picture here, Lynn. He ended up resigning, but not until the past couple of days. So for a full week, he was still employed. Nobody fired him, which is just mind boggling to me. Um, People like this should not be able to resign. And I just look, I know logic never carries any weight in these, you know, in these talks, like racists just don't respond well to logic. But I just have a question for you. What about the Texans' recent history makes you believe that white quarterbacks are good decision makers? <laughs> uh, since the start of the 2014 season, eight, the team, the quarter, the Houston Texans have started nine quarterbacks. Eight of them have been white. Is Red, does Redden really miss the brilliant mind and accuracy of Brandon Whedon? What about Ryan Mallett, Case Keenum, Brian Hoyer, TJ Yates, Brock Osweiler, or Tom Savage? All who you probably have never heard of. Deshaun Watson has the potential to become the best quarterback in Texans history. He's on his way back from an ACL tear in 2017. He is a really bright star in Futures lead and does not need to deal with this racist bull crap. Burn it. Burn. Burn. 
After all that burning, let's celebrate some of the accomplishments of the badass women in this world this week. Honorable mentions go to Sarah Robles for setting a new record in the U.S., cleaned and jerked 162 kilos in the USA Weightlifting Open in Las Vegas. She broke Cheryl Hayworth's record of 161 kilos set in 2005. We're waiting for our own Jessica Luther to take that on. English Rugby Union's RFU is set to reintroduce full-time contracts for the England women's team starting in 2019. Alba Palacios is the first transgendered player in Spanish women's soccer. Shelby Kilcollins of the Petersboro Pete's Hockey Organization. She's just an ongoing inspiration, a coach, a community organizer, and creates post-secondary engagement platforms to empower and encourage women and create new fan bases in hockey. Also an ongoing inspiration is Robin Farina, coach, former pro cyclist, and founder of the Women's Cycling Association, who continues to push for inclusion and gender parity in cycling. Kelsey Martinez, the first female assistant coach for the Oakland Raiders and the only woman strength training coach in the NFL. I'd also like to take a minute to remember that this is 45 years since Billie Jean King won the Battle of the Sexes, and it's worth commemorating that badassery. And finally, can I get a drum roll? North Carolina Courage for their NWSL championship after a 3-0 victory over the Portland Thorns. However, it may have pained Shireen and I and their gangbuster season all around. Congratulations to the North Carolina Courage. Okay, in the dark times in which we live, what's keeping you all going? Shireen? Uh, Dickinson College. I'm so excited about going to Dickinson this weekend where I'm going to see our very own Amir Rose Davis, Brenda Elsie. I'm so excited about that. Everything from getting picked up in the same car to not understanding what's happening in the escape room and probably having my anxiety triggered. Um, I'm just really, I'm also really excited about getting my Burn It All Down merch, which is actually coming with Brenda. So I'm very, 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 very excited. There's a lot of excitement. My kids are doing rep tryouts for sports like volleyball. So I'm like going from one place to another right now. But I'm also really, really excited about fall and big scarves and wool sweaters and socks with my Birkenstocks. So yay, fall. All right. Lindsay? Well, Shireen always has so many and she ends up taking mine. Mine was going to be fall too. So I don't have any others. I don't have kids or nobody's inviting me to speak anywhere. So the only thing I have is fall. So you could have left that for me, Shireen. (laughs) (laughs) Note to people listening, invite Lindsay to speak. Yeah, no joke. I don't need the kids part. Don't need the kids part. But invite me to speak could, could work. Could work. Yeah. Jessica? Yeah, we don't know what fall is here. It is still really warm, y'all. We are waiting. In in Austin, the big thing is the first night that gets into the 60s, and we have not gotten there yet. But I had a lot this week. It was a huge sports week for me. So on Monday, thanks to my friends at the Center for Sports Communication and Media at the University of Texas, I got a ticket to go to the Andy Roddick's Foundation. Andy Roddick Foundation's big benefit, which was Andy Roddick and Roger Federer sitting on a stage chatting with each other, moderated by Mary Carrillo, and I was in the third row. 
And I just like, it was a lot for me. And I loved every every second of it. It was wonderful. And then on Tuesday, there was an event at the LBJ Presidential Library, which is on campus at UT. Uh, They have a big exhibit right now around sport and civil rights and social justice, and they're doing programming. And so on Tuesday, they had a conversation between U.S. Olympic fencer Iftahaj Muhammad, the former long snapper and Green Beret Nate Boyer, who's famous for suggesting that Colin Kaepernick kneel. I don't totally know why he was there. And former NFL coach Darren Roberts who runs the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation at UT, and I love Darren. So that was a really fun thing. And then on Friday, there was the Dan Jenkins Medal Dinner on campus where they honored the best sports writing, and I got to meet Sally Jenkins and Seth Wickersham, and Mary Carrillo was back to emcee that event. And for as a teaser... For all of our tennis fans out there, in the middle of all of this, Mary Carrillo was nice enough to sit down with me for, I think, maybe over an hour. It was a long time. She was so kind. And we chatted about all of those things. I recorded all of it for you guys. And so that was it was a huge thrill for me. But I will also get to share it with all of our flamethrowers. And so that'll we'll post that sometime soon. That's awesome. For me, I don't want to be repetitive. Shireen took mine too, Lynn, so it's not just you. I'm, I'm Dickinson. I really want to, I'm really excited. It's a, a sport and social justice symposium. We have a great keynote, which is Shireen. <laughs> so I'm really excited. <laughs> she, she goes and I go. And it looks like Amira from Penn State is going to make it. And so, yeah, I'm really thrilled about that. And I hate the fall. So just to let you know, it just, (laughs) all it means for me is that winter's coming and I'm super, super angry because I love summer so much. Such a contrarian, Brenda. I am. I am. And I have to go on all these fall field trips, like apple picking and pumpkin picking and stuff with my kids. And it's cute and it's nice. But it's also for me, it's like, I don't see what we're celebrating here. (laughs) I want it to be spring. But the one good thing is I love, for me, Halloween is the most important holiday of the year. And I'm already thinking about costumes, and that's really exciting. And that might be my what's good for, like, the next month. So just settle in. So that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate. Let us know what we did and how you think we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. You can email us at Burn It All Down Pod at gmail.com. And please check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com. You can find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon and merchandise. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, which helps us to do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. Until next time, I'm Brenda Elsie on behalf of Shereen Ahmed, Jessica Luther, and Lindsay Gibbs. Have a great week. And I saw-